Hello and welcome to the Media Leader Podcast. I'm Jack Benjamin. Last week, world leaders met at Bletchley Park for the Global AI Summit. It occurred amid the News Media Association's Journalism Matters campaign, wherein news publishers, MPs, and the general public all expressed anxiety about the potential use of AI to spread misinformation ahead of next year's general election in various polls. Meanwhile, it's uh, still full steam ahead for AI developers like OpenAI, the creator of ChatGPT, who unveiled new updates at its developer conference this week. Also in the news this week, it's Christmas season already among us. That uh, begins with a number of questions about the strength of the advertising market going into the fourth quarter. We're going to get into that today on the podcast, as well as some more earnings releases and upfronts. Our editor-in-chief, Omar, is in Nice the rest of this week, covering the international television and video conference there, and he will be interviewing the CEOs of Nielsen and Kantar Media while there, so stay tuned for that from him. But instead of Omar today joining us, I'm very happy to be joined, as usual, by my colleague, Ella Sagar. Hello. As well as a returning guest, uh, Cass Naylor. Who good is morning. The, <laughs> good morning to you as well. Uh, Cass is the co-director of Adv- advocacy at Advertising, and you also consult with Purpose Union. Yes, that's correct. Uh, so thanks, both of you, for for joining me. And uh, I should ask, add that, Cass, you will be coming back on regularly coming forward. So I'm really excited to, to have you as a regular on the podcast. Likewise, as long as the listeners can stand the sound of my voice. <laughs> <laughs> you have a lovely voice, don't oh, worry about you. it. Um, so as I alluded to in that intro, uh, AI has been well and truly back in the news over the past week. According to these new surveys, uh, two-thirds of Brits are concerned with AI's ability to spread misinformation and fake news, and 97% of news brand editors say the risk to the public from AI-generated misinformation is, quote, greater than ever before, end quote. of Brits say they would prefer to read content solely created by humans, and 74% admit they're unsure if they could identify AI-generated content from human-created content. Uh, There's similar concerns, not just in the UK, it's also in the US. I saw a survey uh, from NewsGuard that said just 10% of Americans think that it's unlikely AI will help spread false information about news topics. So everyone's basically expecting that AI is going to be a huge problem coming into the election. I'm curious what you guys think. I mean, is this top of mind for your biggest concerns, especially with regard to news consumption? Uh, Cass, I'm curious if you have thoughts first. Yeah, I mean, I've I've kind of been following this for a couple of years now, but but most I think it came into real focus when I was I was incidentally I was learning to code at the beginning of this year, mm. um, and it was around the same time the GPC three point five came out um, commercially available, and the the scale of it was astonishing. Like people I was I was learning with were using it to write their own code, and then for me I immediately thought, okay, well this feels this feels like a recurring problem now. If the computer can write its own code, then where does that lead us? But there's this broader conversation, obviously, you know, the the summit and um, the executive order that President Biden just put out, yeah. uh, as well as the EU's AI Act, all treat this kind of topic of misinformation, disinformation. Um, and as you said, yeah, there's a real concern that we're going into uh, what's going to be an incredibly fraught electoral cycle on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, and the scale of uh, deceit that can be that can be executed with this is 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 deeply concerning, um, and I'm I'm glad to see that a lot of the focus, or at least one of the big themes that came out of Bletchley, um, was around watermarking of content. Yep. Now, how technically feasible that is is still up in the air. Um, I've been listening to people on CNBC and reading people in the FT who say that there's you know there are significant technical limitations to being able to do this, but that for me feels like the main. One of the most important things to crack is how do we either build systems that can more effectively identify this content on the user side, or how do we 
properly mark them, watermark them as they're produced. There are no answers for that currently, but that's being looked at. I'm glad. Mm. Yeah, so kind of labelling of it so that you know, because I think that's the scary thing is when you can't tell the difference, which I think a lot of people are concerned about. Well, it seems like most people say that they can't tell the difference. Mm. I mean, I, and I would admit, uh, gosh, I saw uh, an AI generated image. I think it was actually Adobe. I'm not even sure if it was someone from OpenAI, but um, that looked so completely lifelike compared to where it was maybe from last year. Um, and that had to do with a lot of like more realistic lighting and shadow effects that are being able to be generated at this point. Um, I mean, yeah, it's only going to get better and better. And I think people all admit <laughs> we can't tell it apart very easily. Mm. So watermarking, obviously one big solution. Um, is there anything else that needs to be put up in terms of guardrails? I know there was, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, President Biden had an executive order, which is probably the only thing the uh, U.S. government can get done at the moment, mm. um, given, you know, gridlock to, to say the least there um is is there a concern that we're sort of sleepwalking into this and we don't have other guardrails up a lot of the conversations i've been overhearing are kind of coming out of bletchley park is like learning the the lessons from social media and like rather than trying to retrofit regulation when it's already really like established and it's been proven to cause issues around mental health and all of those things that they're trying to have those conversations about regulation earlier mm. and i think that in a way it's like the uk trying to putting on that whole uh conference it's a very canny move of trying to position themselves as that we're going to be at the forefront of this conversation and hosting these like international ai mm. kind of uh debates and trying to kind of put in place something so yeah in terms of so that we don't go down the path that social media has gone down where it's kind of gone where any regulation is now as soon as the danger would be that uh, you introduce regulation and it's already out of date right. because the, te the technology's already surpassed it yeah. so that's the danger i think and that's going to happen that that it feels to me like legislation shouldn't be able to be produced quickly enough to catch up because mm. it feels like if you're producing legislation that quickly to keep up with the pace of technology then the legislation itself is has to be relatively poorly thought through or has to be relatively quickly kind of put vague through. and yeah not exactly. specific enough mm. and you've said yeah as you identified we we totally failed to regulate social media um and whether whether there are lessons that can be learned there or whether there are, this is a, a a issue with the idea of actively putting hard legislation around this or whether there needs to be um guardrails as you say jack and i think there was an interesting point made on the BBC about the difference between this phrase, this term guardrails, which are explicitly not laws and explicitly not regulation. You know, guardrails are kind of things that the industry puts in place mm -hmm. um, to regulate itself with mm -hmm. guidance from government. And I think that's probably one of the most important things that came out of, of Bletchley was A, an identification of the problem and a mutual agreement of what the problem is among the people who actually matter, America, China and the EU. Um, all of whom are taking different speeds in their approach to this, incidentally. Um, but also this proposals for the industry itself to institute things like red teaming, penetration testing, various forms of self-regulation, which I think are the only way we're going to be able to keep ahead of this. Um, I'd be interested to see what the EU's um, AI Act uh, ends up looking like when it's gone through its full process, because that is quite comprehensive in terms mm. of what it what it deals with can and i ask a stupid question what's red teaming red teaming is the uh, basically is when one set of developers pretend to be the bad guys oh. and they attempt to break into or otherwise subvert 
um, systems that are being managed by the blue team. So they, this, you know, these are all the same company, mm-hmm. all the same people, but um, the blue team tries to defend against the red team. And it's meant to um, kind of improve the security of systems by spotting uh, vulnerabilities. It's called penetration testing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, this is all about... Um, like the training data and things like that. Um, and that it gets incredibly technically complicated um, trying to get into that kind of detail. Um, but the, yeah, there's there's some good ideas mm-hmm. at the moment. Uh, the, how efficable any of them actually are in the short term waits to be seen. Yeah, I mean, it, it's worth noting that, you know, as this is all going on, as you mentioned, uh, it, the speed at which AI is being developed is way, way faster than the speed at which anything legislatively or even in terms of self-regulation can happen. Um, you know, OpenAI just had their developer conference. And to me, one of the most interesting things they announced was the uh, new platform to, for, for people to create their own AI agents, their own GPTs that are not just chat GPT. So there's basically customized versions of chat gpt you don't need to be a software developer in order to to utilize them and they can take on both public data and also proprietary data um the best quote i saw about this which uh was sort of concerned with with this development which is really cool in some ways uh to be able to tailor your ai experience but um it was from the verge uh journalist casey newton he wrote that the ability to create tailored ai systems raises quote very important questions about how much agency our AI systems should have, unquote. And he asked us to consider scenarios where bad actors built uh, GPT models for things like stock market manipulation mm-hmm. or phishing or privacy violation. Um, and I'm curious, uh, do, do, you, do you also share those same concerns or, or should we also be looking a little bit more positively about this development and technology as this can be absolutely revolutionary in terms of work efficiency and, and, and different things that we can be doing. Cause I, I you know, a lot gets said about the concerns mm-hmm. with AI, but yeah. there should, there's also something to be said about, well, actually that sounds like it would be really useful, especially within the media industry. Well, maybe we can design better or more easier, some tools that can help us do our jobs better. Yeah. There are the, the scale of the potential benefits are enormous. I think we, the, the thing that we've been doing really since the dawn of the internet is generating data, exabytes of data, but we have been kind of storing it without really an idea of what we want to do to process it. The, the, um, a lot of the conversations that I've been um, kind of watching and listening to have been around um, the potential for medical applications using medical data um, at scale to develop more bespoke treatment plans to develop, you know, AI surgeons and things like that. So there are obviously incredible potential applications for this but i am an incredibly risk averse person just by nature <laughs> mm. and i think that for me this this max of when do you remember in i want to say it was 2016 2017 when crispr became a commercially viable technology yeah, um, yeah. for the listeners who aren't aware crispr is uh basically the process by which uh individual consumers i say not even really scientists um can edit genetic strings essentially in people's garages and uh the, the you know there was a big concern that that could be used to develop biological weapons and chemical weapons and things like that and now we're now seeing the same thing with um with ai i don't really know where the regulation on crispr actually went but it didn't end up being a massive story so maybe it wasn't as- i think it's just the technology still needs its time but yeah. yes there was that concern about like um, i don't know if you've seen the movie gattaca where you can start <laughs> you know editing every individual like baby's dna and and create the perfect human and then 
well, <laughs> I won't spoil the movie, but that obviously leads to not the best society. I think that's the kind of image whenever anyone mentions AI or artificial intelligence, it's the dystopian post-apocalyptic mm. film and uh, films that is kind of mentioned by Phil Rowley in his column this week. And kind of that doesn't really reflect what AI could do for our society. Um, not yet. Not anyway. yet anyway, but it's yeah. kind of a... Uh, the, I think it is a really interesting where place where he was talking about is like AI can where we get to a place where AI can multitask instead mm. of just be really good at a single task. Because I think if anyone's played around with chat GPT, it can be very good if you ask it a very specifically worded uh, kind of question. But if you go too broad or if it just doesn't quite. It can't, but that's that's only limited by the data that's put in. Mm. And I think that's the thing with with AI at the moment is that if the data is not. Uh, the data are not kind of reflective. It depends how much data there are on how many groups of people. So certain groups of people, there are less data about them. So they're not included in those kind of AI kind of outputs and models, which is something that's quite interesting to me in terms of an accessibility thing and a kind of reflective of of different groups. So you might end up having similar issues that you have with other like um, industries where certain people are not being included in whatever AI is kind of covering does that mm. make sense mm, mm. yeah there's a potential for discrimination because yeah. i think this is one thing that the executive order um sort of touched on is this in this uh, desire to remove the discrimination from these models and i was thinking the only way you're going to do that is by removing the discrimination in the data that it's trained on and gbt is trained on common crawl which is a read of basically the entire internet so you're getting a microcosm of of the internet and its various biases how you remove that from the training data set i have no idea i'm sure people smarter than I am are thinking about this problem. The hallucination thing is something that um, OpenAI are looking at. Uh, I saw their chief technology officer on stage with Sam Altman for Wall Street Journal Tech Live. I think it was a last month or so. And she was saying that they're looking at, they're, they're making progress on this hallucination point. Um, but yeah, to, to your point about the difference between what we're talking about with GPT, which is a narrow AI, it's incredibly smart, but it is for its purpose. What we are concerned about with the Terminator is artificial general intelligence, mm. which is multi-domain, general purpose, um, one might call it pseudo-sentient AI. Mm. Um, and the potential for that, I, I, I think it's actually healthy for people to keep Terminator in mind throughout. Um, I know it, it seems like uh, science fiction, and there was a gentleman from the American Enterprise Institute on CNBC who was saying that these threats are all science fiction. And in my head, I was thinking they're science fiction until they become real. Right. <laughs> and you need to have, I think we all need to have a little bit more fear about what this could be and enter into this process slowly, mm. carefully, and methodically rather than just going, the benefits are incredible. The benefits are amazing. Because for me, this is a technology that could proliferate in the same way that nuclear technology can proliferate or biological weapons can proliferate. We need some structures around it because it, you know, the scale of what it could do, mm -hmm. especially around democracy, is incredibly concerning. Yeah. I think that's what news publishers especially were were expressing. Um, and another thing they, they expressed last week amid the, the Journalism Matters Week uh, run by the NMA was uh, not just AI, but also how big tech is, is uh, I think they, they said, quote, an existential threat um, mm -hmm. to the industry. 
um, namely, you know, news brand, uh, I think it was like uh, nine and 10 news brand publishers saying that Google and Meta specifically were, were that sort of existential threat. Um, and that has to do with the encroachment of the likes of Google and Facebook in uh, taking digital revenues away from, from news publishers. And so you have this issue where news publishers' business models are struggling mm-hmm. at a time when they're extremely valuable because we're going to be seeing presumably, at least everyone's worried about seeing lots more misinformation, disinformation. So you need these reliable sources of news. They're not necessarily getting funded properly because big tech has the money um, or it's getting a lot of the ad revenue that that publishers might otherwise have gotten. So, um, you know, I'm curious, I guess, uh, uh, there's been a lot of uh, of these concerns expressed throughout the year. Um, but do we see that as a big issue? So it's not just, is it not just AI, but also the tech companies that are also developing AI? So you have Meta, for instance, mm. yeah, okay, they own Facebook. Um, they also are developing their own AI products. So they're both they're they're the cause of, in some ways of multiple problems at once for publishers and people that care about the news. Some things never change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, for the platforms, I feel like it feels like the platforms are incentivized to to work on this because the quality of feed content when we really start turning the taps on on the AI-generated stuff, it's just going to get so bad. People aren't going to want to use these platforms anyway. So Meta is incentivized to work on these regulations, on these frameworks, mm-hmm. because so as to protect the fidelity of their content. You said 90% of people want, or what the statistic you said about... Uh, uh, 90% of uh, news brand publishers. The people yeah, who want yeah. human-generated content. Oh, oh people yeah. People yeah, want yeah. to see human-generated content. 70% or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... You know that that feels like a clarion call for the for the big for big tech to go. Okay, right. We need to protect the the integrity of the content we have. Make sure it's actually generated by the humans on the social network. Um, yeah, I'd like to see some. I'd like to see that kind of a uh, motivation from them. Mm-hmm. I do want to uh, move us along to uh, another big topic. I mean, we could talk about AI ad nauseum, and we'll continue the conversation, of course, uh, at another time. But um, I'm curious about the sort of strength of the overall ad market as we're now heading into Christmas season. Uh, this is uh, a stressful time of year. I think I, I often hear that uh, you'll never really know how the year is going until you're through Q4, and then you can look back and be like, okay, yeah, actually, we were doing, we did pretty well, or, or maybe we didn't hit our, our mark. Um, at our Future of Media event last month, uh, an analyst, Ian Whitaker, noted how businesses have held pretty steady this year, despite the inflationary pressures. And that's in part because they're actually contributing to inflationary pressures by being able to raise their prices in order to maintain a revenue growth. Um, and those price increases can be done successfully, especially through uh, marketing which helps to create stronger brands and therefore less price sensitivity. Um, I'm curious, uh, are we optimistic that this is continuing through the rest of the year uh, in the Christmas season? Uh, the Ad Association, uh, uh, as of the time of um, this podcast coming out, would have just released uh, their forecast for the season. Uh, Ella, I know you, you've had a, a look at that. What are you expecting in terms of Christmas spend? Yeah, I think uh, it's a record, another record year. So last year was a record with 9 billion in ad spend forecasted. And then this year it's 9.5 billion. Um, and so that's about a 4.8% increase. And the, they break it down by channel. And obviously this is forecasted, but broadcast, vi- broadcast video on demand was up as was out of home, online display, cinema, like up double, double digits between like 10 and mm. 20% compared to last year. Um, but then, and TV is still uh, predicted to be quite a big remain significant was the the kind of phrasing that was used it was um about uh, 1.5 billion in q4 2023 is going to be spent on 
on TV. Um, but what another interesting element of it was that online or like the internet, you know, it's going to take four out of five pounds. Um, right, so okay. that, you know, you've got out of home and like TV and, and like those cinema, those kind of uh, big growth numbers, but actually in the kind of, if you were looking at it in a pie chart, then yeah. it's, it's kind of, and that's, that's the interesting thing of how, and I, it, I, I would need to look into it a bit more, but if that's display or video or like social media and how that, how that looks, but it's, it's, yeah, it seems like a pretty good picture most, mostly for, mm. for those kinds of, you know, and, uh, and obviously at the moment, all the Christmas, um, campaigns are dropping. I don't think John Lewis has dropped just yet. I saw a teaser earlier this mm. morning. Oh, that was um, a teaser. It was right. a teaser, with I teasing think. Yeah, campaign. teasing. Oh you kind of oh, release wow. a little trailer of the ad. Yeah. With all the Christmas ads, you release like a little, the big, big ones. It's like a 10 second little kind of clip i don't know of like a rick astley or michael buble in in a supermarket or something <laughs> um, the film trailers for christmas yeah right yeah. right um do you guys have i mean a, a favorite all-time christmas ad i mean from my perspective i'm kind of like uh this would be thanksgiving time i mean you might start the holiday season in america now mm. for advertising once halloween gets passed but i'm i'm not in the mode of christmas yet mm. yeah i suppose because in america it would be like halloween and then thanksgiving and then christmas it's kind yeah. of spaced out like well, it, it, Christmas well, is encroaching upon everything. <laughs> At least you've got a barrier there. But you've got something to protect Christmas. Yeah, from I yeah. I saw mince pies and Christmas things in the shops on my birthday weekend, which is August Bank Holiday weekend. Wow! Offensive. And might I say that is, is exactly the word that is offensive. But there's so much money being thrown at, at this time of the year, so I mean, yeah, it makes right. sense to create as as big of a uh, period where you mm. can having be an on. advent calendar on sale since September. What do they want you to do? Do they want you to have an advent calendar? for september october november and december i think they want like, you to get in on the advent calendar yeah, early before they raise the price advent on you. don't tell me because i'll buy four advent calendars <laughs> i'll live that reality if they want me to <laughs> i think it's it, they, so i was i was i saw um the consumer confidence index paints a quite interesting story of this year because in october consumer confidence in this country was at its lowest since records began oh my God. which was in 1975 and uh, it's just started to recover now with, because obviously inflation has been stubbornly high. It was 9.6, I think the middle of this year. It's now down to about 6.2%. So, you know. Still pretty high. Still yeah. pretty high, yeah, in yeah. relative terms. Um, but showing hopefully a positive trend. And I'm hoping yeah. that that will, you know, be reflected in the consumption uh, spend over Christmas. But again, it's just, everyone. St it still feels like everyone's pinching pennies. Mm. And obviously as we go into... Um, higher energy bill season, as I'm now calling it. Um, <laughs> those considerations having to be made too. So I I'm glad to hear, you know, that, that the advertising market is um, confident. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, still awaits to be seen whether... I think yeah, I, I think it's I think it's interesting to draw the distinction between the consumer spending mm -hmm. market, which is lots of pressure. People might not spend quite as much on products this holiday season than they might have five years ago and the same thing was probably true of last year and yet the ad market remains really high because you know i think companies have caught on to the fact that well if we'll spend more on marketing especially when times are tough then we can raise those prices a little bit more and people are still going to be able to buy they might not be buying as many things but if our brand is the really strong brand then we can kind of crowd out our competitors let's say the market that maybe aren't able to invest as much in marketing 
um, which I think is really quite interesting. Yeah, it's a good opportunity for brand building. If it's not necessarily just driving people towards a product, mm -hmm. there's a good kind of um, space here for for companies to engage in a bit of brand activation stuff. And also, you know, I'm obviously going to trumpet the the horn of um, purposeful advertising mm -hmm. and, you yeah. know, uh, trying to tell a story, trying to get your brand values across. This is a good kind of moment, um, hopefully, for that. But but yeah, I'd be interested to see if the data, um, uh, if if it's being driven by B2B rather than B2C, because mm. um, there might be a different story entirely when we're talking about, you know, businesses advertising to each other and their services mm. and things like that. Mm. Um, I, did, so I did ask the question, but I, don't th I didn't did, actually I don't wait think for either of us actually answered oh, what our uh, favorite Christmas ad favorite, Yeah, favorite Christmas ad. I, I was trying to think of something that wasn't John Lewis because <laughs> um, I didn't want to just pick the most famous ones. Um, Which one's the most famous one? But I mean, there are so many, <laughs> and but I, I kind of... I was trying to think of one that I I just I, I really liked the the MS ad last year, which kind of debuted Dawn French as the Christmas fairy, but that's just because I'm a massive Dawn French fan. Um and they kind of I like that sort of series when they carry on that like character. Mm. So like Aldi introducing Kevin the carrot and that sort of oh, and Kevin. that sort of thing. Yeah, Kevin. <laughs> you just reminded me about Kevin now. Yeah. I had two answers. So um so I'll give you two answers. My favorite Christmas ad so far from this year is Aldi's ad with Kevin, where he he is kind of it's like a Willy Wonka sort of spin off, but with all the different vegetables in the supermarket, and it's all quite wholesome and cute. and And so there's that one. That's my favorite one so far. And then my previous one, the first one that kind of came to mind, which was like the cutest one, is like the Edgar the Dragon one, mm. which was like John Lewis and and Waitrose. And I can't really afford to shop in John Lewis or Waitrose, but I still love the ad. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's that's important yeah. then, isn't it? Yeah. Talk about brand building. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, Cass, what, what about you? I also have two, unfortunately. I had uh, one that when, when asked the question what my favorite Christmas ad was, the first one I thought of was The Man on the Moon, um, the Age UK. Oh, Age UK Age UK, which yeah. might have been in partnership with somebody. But mm. I remember it being an Age UK advert about the loneliness of elderly people around mm. Christmas. Mm. And for me, that's like... I, I like a Christmas ad that has a message in it mm -hmm. um, about the Christmas spirit, essentially. Mm -hmm. So like, and it still tugs my heartstrings to, to watch it. Um, but when I think of Christmas ad, my mind immediately still goes to the um, holidays are coming, Coca-Cola. Yeah, yep. I was, I was, I was probably going to say that that's like the the first thing I think of when I hear a Christmas ad. And, and to be fair, I don't. I'm not less familiar with UK Christmas ad, especially historical. Whatever your carrot friend is, I there's <laughs> a deep canon, yeah. deep lore for this. I'm, I'm not your up face to date when I that. said Kevin the carrot, and you're like, "What are you talking about?" Hello, not this <laughs> yeah. um, but I always think of the the Coca-Cola polar bears. Um, I don't. I mean. Uh, that maybe it's because they're always on us, but they, it's it's not just the holiday season. It also extends often into like Super Bowl uh, era mm. part of the year. Um, but it doesn't even make any sense to me. Like, what do polar bears have to do with Coca Cola? <laughs> doesn't matter. Like, what it's does just Santa iconic. Claus have to do with Coca Cola? Well, What's everything because they they invented it. <laughs> well, it has everything to do. With Christmas. Yeah, you, you have to buy a Coke on Christmas. I mean, it's an American pastime. That one, I think, I think in particular, the Coca Cola one speaks to the importance of a good jingle. Because mm. for me, it's the music. Mm. The music sticks in my head. And every time I even think about Christmas, my brain starts playing mm -hmm. it in my head. And that, for me, is powerful advertising. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the spirit of Christmas through through advertising. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. There, yeah. There's something to be said. Quite a few of the ads this year so far, like the they do have this idea of like Christmas is about giving back and that kind of that purpose you were talking about, um, which is uh, like Boots 
I think, um, and uh, Coca-Cola as well. It was like kind of give kindness at Christmas sauce, which is the uh, their messaging, which is quite interesting. Because yeah. I think that it, it is, they're trying to walk a quite a, a, a tight line of like, we don't want to go like too full out and be like, buy everything this Christmas when they know that people can't right. and seem like they're spending too much money on marketing when actually people are struggling. But at the same time, they do have to get their marketing message out. So that's something that I think they're trying to, that big brands are trying to kind of navigate. Mm. I want to move us to our uh, rapid fire round. Um, we can talk about Christmas when, you know, actually it is actually <laughs> coming yeah. as, as opposed to now. It's November. Talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, can't talk about Thanksgiving on this podcast. What, what, what <laughs> do, a, do you what get Thanksgiving adverts? Yeah. Uh, How does that work? You know, it's been a while now since I've been in the U.S. I don't know if I can name you any specific Thanksgiving adverts. But, yeah, there will be ads that are uh, definitely direct around Thanksgiving. I think the way that Christmas in this country is treated is a bit like how we treat Thanksgiving in terms of, like, you go all out with the food. Mm-hmm. I mean, people still do that in Christmas in the U.S. But you can't you have – what, are you going to have turkey for, like, every single day for <laughs> – for two, two months, months. <laughs> like, I, I, I mean so um but yeah there's there's lots of ads that are sort of around family time spending family uh, time with family yeah. and you know, throwing the pigskin around that's what we call uh, american football oh, okay uh, do you give chris ball. like presents at thanksgiving as well as chris no no, no. you just get you um, just get food really overweight <laughs> and, that's, yeah. and it's great well it's like the winter sort of that's that's functional it's it's unique. yeah you're putting on a coat <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah exactly <laughs> yeah um uh but so we're gonna move to the rapid fire round and uh cast something that we've instituted recently is is if uh, i'm gonna time you mm-hmm. uh oh, for God. your answer <laughs> <laughs> no one told me this in the brief <laughs> <laughs> and uh the idea is to to keep yourself under a minute which is uh i i understand a, a short amount of time but we're trying to get through pretty quick a bunch of different topics and if you go over i can play a sad trombone sound effect and that's going to make you feel really bad about yourself so you should try and avoid it if you can um but first question i will ask uh uh, of ella first the uh iab uk has launched a campaign featuring a new bear mascot we were talking about kevin the carrot well the iab now has a chief digital cheerleader Mm -hmm. Uh, i actually forget what the name of joy 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 the bear (laughs) Ella, why does the IAB feel the need to promote digital advertising now when, by all accounts, digital ad spend, as you mentioned earlier, is one of the few areas that that is really doing well and and quite dominant? Yeah. So it's its first brand building campaign and it's with Joy, uh, the eight foot uh, chief digital cheerleader who happens to be a bear. And the kind of uh, symbolism is, you know, Joy is maybe misunderstood on the outside and actually is kind of quite has got more to offer. And so she's actually listed as an employee of the IAB on their LinkedIn and she's going to be kind of featuring in a few campaigns. And James Chandler, the CMO who I was speaking to about it, he was saying, well, the double digit growth is actually was actually kind of masking a problem of how uh, marketers were feeling about digital, that no one kind of was looking at it uh, in the same way that they look at telly or radio or and thinking, oh, yeah, my favorite ever ad was like a creative targeting, like retargeting digital campaign or affiliate marketing campaign. There wasn't that kind of like uh sentiment towards digital and they and in order to have a sentiment and like emotion you're more likely to kind of be engaged with that channel so that was kind of the reason why they're Mm. gonna keep that gotcha and and the bear can help yeah the bear can help she's and yeah she's on uh like youtube she'll be popping up at different events and things over the next couple of years it's like a long-term thing that they're gonna institute gotcha Mm. back to mascots 
Back to, I mean, <laughs> nothing wrong with a good mascot if, no, you, can do it, if you can do it well, yeah. Um, the UK box office figures uh, came out uh, earlier this month for the month of October, um, and they're now running 10% ahead of last year, uh, helped along by, of course, Barbenheimer over the summer, and then a, a slew of genre films, especially horror films, that, that came out uh, earlier this fall. I'm curious, Cass, uh, do you think that this is a sign that demand for cinema going has recovered from COVID, or is it more of a short-term example of pretty unique films, a lot of event films, Barbenheimer became an event, um, the Taylor Swift uh, huge uh, concert film, that was also a bit of an event film. I'm curious what you, what, how you view the cinema going market. Yeah, I think I definitely agree with that latter analysis. Um, for me, the, the Barbenheimer moment was so so massively hyped and i think that it speaks to the power of um meme marketing and the and the the scale to which uh having those films released at the same time amplified both of them i think is definitely um an important motivator for the the box office that we've seen um as well as obviously you know put taylor swift out there people are gonna people are gonna buy it and uh, it's a similar sort of thing right so you see you see this sort of cultish behavior developing around it um you know we're seeing cult films born like in real time rather than things becoming cult films later on. So uh, I think that's quite, I think that's quite cool, but I, I definitely going to see Barbenheimer. I say that like it's one film going to see Barbie <laughs> and Oppenheimer on the same day in that order. No, sorry. I did Oppenheimer and then Barbie yeah. um, feels like uh, that was the first time I've been to a cinema in a long, long, long time because it was an occasion. Mm. I went there with mm. my friends. We, we went for brunch. So yeah, I think that's why I'll, I'll add a, a little bit more time. because that, that was a perfectly timed answer. Um, just as a follow-up, I mean, in terms of your own cinema going, is it just like, I'll go for the big tentpole event film? Or would you, because you've maybe been to the cinema a bit more often than you had been, would that become more of a habit for you to go see films that maybe um, maybe I would have waited for it to come out on Netflix, but you know, I actually really enjoy going to the cinema? I usually wait, but I only ever go to see films in the cinema where I'm worried about it being spoiled for me. And that was one of the things why I, why I was so keen to go and see both these films when they came out, because I knew the online conversation about it was so mad and so much, and I'm terminally online anyway. So I knew I was going to get it spoiled immediately if I didn't see it as soon as possible. And likewise, I will see like um, uh, sequels to films that I like, Star Wars, for instance. Yeah, I see those quickly. Mm -hmm. But if I'm not particularly compelled to like, I don't, I'm not really worried about it being spoiled for me or... or you know, I don't have a connection to the franchise, then I will wait until it lands on. Something. There's something to be said about that. It's almost like the, the sense of community, like I need to know so that one, it's not spoiled, but then I also want to talk about it and I want to read what everyone else is saying about it. And exactly. it's only going to be a big cultural moment for so long. Like if you wanted to have a big conversation about mm. Barbie right now, like, I mean, not said that you can't find that somewhere, yeah. but the, comp the, the the culture's moved on to the extent that now we're talking yeah. about Taylor Swift a bit more. Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I was at a firework display over the weekend and uh, they played the Barbie song during one of the like the displays, and all the fireworks were pink and everything, oh, nice. and uh, and everyone went absolutely mad. Yeah. So the Barbie <laughs> thing, I think people still have this whole like, it's that that song comes on, and then uh, yeah, and so that again, it's like the power of that like yeah. audio of just like oh. And we should not be under the illusion that it was a, a, a mutually reciprocal thing. I think Oppenheimer definitely benefited from its association with Barbie and less the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's totally yeah, fair Yeah, to Oppenheimer say. was a bit of a harder sell, I think. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, Clear Channel uh, released its earnings yesterday, uh, but we're recording this on Wednesday and they haven't released them yet. Ella, I know you're going to be looking at that. Uh, we're just taping the episode just before they're about to come out. Mm-hmm. Um, you were at their upfronts. Uh, that was only a week ago. Was it, was it Was it a week? It feels like ages ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. What were, uh, you know, quickly just the top line takeaways from, from your reporting of mm. what's going on with their European business? Yeah, so I have been looking at Clear Channel for a while. Um, and so they have now, they've been wanting to become a US only business for quite a long time, but now they're actually starting to institute those changes that would mean that that would become a reality. So selling its Europe South businesses, Spain needs, is subject to some co- competition approval, but four Europe South businesses have sold. They've just put up Europe North for sale, uh, initiated the process for sale. Um, and that's 12 markets, including the UK. And then they're also doing a strategic review of Latin America. So whether that means they sell individual markets or whether they sell like kind of a parcel of markets, like maybe it makes sense to have like Scandinavia together or that sort of thing. Like all of that is kind of speculation on my part, but that's what I'm sort of listening out for. And all of that is to address their debt. So those are the two things that I think would be interesting to look to listen for in the call. Gotcha. Did either of you listen to the King's speech yesterday to move us along? Uh, c- clips of it, yeah. yeah <laughs> clips of it. Um, I read the speech in, entirely, but like, oh. but yeah. But just I, didn't want to hear Charles I just didn't, talk. Mm, no. <laughs> I heard that it was um, the most words and the fewest bills yes. of any King's speech or Queen's speech in a long time. And I saw that and went, right. Okay. Yeah, it's the fewest uh, bills since 2014 included in the actual speech itself. Yeah. And how much can the government actually still get done, yeah. really? I mean, all this stuff that's kind of that keeps coming out, these plans. You know, they're going to ban smoking or they're going to do this and the other. Well, they, like, they've just done something about laughing gas. Isn't that really, really oh, yeah, something important that you really need? We need to cover. I remember <laughs> if you want to have a laugh. <laughs> um, well, on, on behalf of the government, Charles did outline the government's desire to at least proceed with the media bill, mm-hmm. um, as well as to support public interest journalism. I was just curious if there were any takeaways that either of you had on particularly those subjects. I mean, Ella, you can start. I know the. Uh, uh, you know, guys at Radio Center were very happy to hear. Yeah, that. I think, well, the media bill has provisions for public service broadcaster, like prominence on smart speakers, and, and also it affects TV as well and, and regulation and those sorts of things, which um, TV and radio um, commercial players would be particularly pleased about. Uh, aside from that, I would say that like one of the things that sort of jumped out of me was was one that you just mentioned, Cass, which was about the vaping and making sure that they, it's not advertised at young people. Mm. Um, that's something that might affect, um, uh, I don't know, like how 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 people work and do that sort of targeting. Um, and I'm trying to think of anything else. And then there was an AI thing, which is it the this government still wants to be at the center of international conversations around AI. Mm. More meetings at Bletchley. Yes. Yeah, exactly. a commitment rather than a, a policy yeah, proposal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually haven't really followed it, so I feel like I need to go back and, and probably. <laughs> I mean, like every every, I just feel like I don't know uh, what utility is there looking at the long term plans of a lot of a lame duck government. <laughs> like I, I, I would usually be aware, and, mm. and you know, when there's more substance in it. But for me, this just feels like uh, you know, not to be too partisan, but the government's just sort of flailing around trying to see what will stick in advance of an October election, which is what it looks like is going to be happening. So we're now counting down eleven months, um, and you know, 
so much of what's coming out of the home office and so much of what's coming out of you know the prime minister's office feels just very short termist and very vote winning rather mm -hmm. than a program for government or a program for meeting any of Rishi's five um, priorities. So I don't know how much utility there is in following what they want to do for the next 11 months mm. or so. Totally fair. Um, uh, one more uh, question for the both of you. Um, in her column this week, Nikki Kemp, who was last week's guest on the podcast, asked if agency leaders are entering their quote-unquote supervillain era with return to office <laughs> mandates. Um, you know, I I'm curious uh, if, you know, if you think that they're entering their supervillain era uh, with return to office mandates, or if there's perhaps a bit more uh, nuance to the discussion. I mean, to be fair, read the column. It is more nuanced. But just taking off that 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 headline, you know, what do, what do you think about basically return to office mandates? Um, Ella, why don't you start? Uh, yeah, Nikki's column starts with a sort of description of, you know, picture this uh, a group, a company Zoom call with the boss saying, oh, you've got to come back to the office and conveniently enough, everyone is at home, including themselves, mm. um, and saying it's really important that everyone's in the office. So I think it's just when there's that sort of um, disconnect and that, um, like, that's when that it kind of becomes a bit uh, super villainy. Mm. Uh, that if you're not going to do what you're expecting your employees to do, then then that's when there's going to be a real kind of uh, culture clash. And this and that kind of leading into that talent crisis and that sort of feeling of discontent of people being like, well, I don't want to stay here if you're not kind of practicing what you preach kind of thing. And yeah, and rowing back on those commitments, it just affects certain groups differently. Mm. Cass? Yeah. Uh, I'm a habitual office worker personally, but obviously I recognize that my, my particular circumstance is different from everybody else's. It feels just like the expectation of talent of workers have now changed irrevocably and the idea that we can force people back into the paradigm that existed before covid feels just myopic um i don't think we've yet cracked the systems to make hybrid working work as effectively as it needs to in order to we've got a productivity problem in this country already have for for many many years um and unless we put some serious work into thinking about how we can we can construct a uh a, a a productive hybrid environment in every company that's going to have to be a priority but um yeah i don't think it's i don't think it's necessarily right to force people to return to the kind of pre-covid way of working people's lives are different fundamentally uh, and yeah as you say ella businesses leaders need to lead from the front with this and they need to actually be the ones living that living their edicts mm. Well, uh, fantastic. We didn't go over time at all in any of those answers. I mean, I'm very impressed. I can actually give you an applause. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I'd like to find the Academy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do have one final question for you, Cass, though. Um, we're trying to ask, ask everyone that comes on the, the podcast this going forward, and it, it's the question of why are you passionate about media? Or what makes you passionate about media? Uh, it's obviously a very broad question answer it in any way but but why why are you so drawn to work in this industry for me that's a very good question i think it comes down to the pursuit of truth without wanting to be very philosophical about it i believe that the provision of reliable information to people is one of the most noble professions you can be involved in um i was an investigative journalist myself back in the day so i have kind of you know super moral view of this but um 
for me, the uh, the role that media and the res- the responsibility and the potential risk around media um, uh, has. We have to look at it as a core institution of society and democracy more so than we do. Um, as I say, you know, a, a democracy can't function without a free press. Um, I think there needs to be, you know, it needs to kind of go go above and beyond that basic responsibility. But I, um, for me, media is the organ through which democracy lives, essentially. And and also, you know, to to paraphrase, I think it's the Wall Street Journal, um, democracy dies in darkness. Also, uh, Washington Post. Washington Post, sorry. Oh, God, I should have known that. Um, we can edit that bit out. Washington Post. Um, uh, but yeah, so that, that's why I, it's a really woolly answer because I, I have many, many sort of competing thoughts on this, but, but I, I view the role of a authoritative, reliable, trusted, well-governed media to be pivotal to the future of, of democracy and to the future of, you know, humanity in general. Um, and I would like for more people to have uh, that kind of attitude, I suppose. Mm. Mm. Well, we'll have to leave it there as a lovely answer. Uh, Cass, Ella, thank you both so much for joining me. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Media Leader Podcast. Find and listen to all our episodes on our website at themedialeader.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. But just remember, please do subscribe to be notified when we release our next episode. From all of us at The Media Leader, I'm editor Omar Oaks. Basic to producer is Jack Benjamin. See you next time.